This podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. Joining a cult is a little like saying, Hey, this life thing, it's confusing. How about I let someone else take the wheel? And I'll go along for the ride. I'll give them all the money I make, and they'll give me food, clothing, shelter, and above all else, direction. That sounds pretty good, and it is pretty good for a while. You feel part of something. There's a strong sense of community within a cult. Also, a sense that your life has purpose. You're not just going through the motions once you've joined a cult. You've made a choice, a commitment, to whatever it is your cult leader stands for. And that's damn exciting. So many of us go through life with no sense of purpose. The promise of purpose is almost enough in itself to join a cult. The problem, of course, is that the type to even consider becoming a cult leader is likely to have some screws loose. And the whole thing is going to be wrapped up in religion, and the guy is going to be claiming he has a private line to God, and you can't question God because you're a fucking moron who joined a cult and is terrified of questioning anything, let alone God, whom you likely believe brought you to the cult in the first place because, again, you're a fucking moron, and that's a little harsh. By fucking moron, I mean easily convinced. And by easily convinced, I mean you're likely to allow this dude, if you're a dude, who's taking all your money and thinking for you, to bang your wife. And if you're a female, you're certainly getting screwed as well, but also you're having a bunch of kids and sharing the father with a harem of crazy bitches like yourself. And then, once you're all wrapped up in each other's DNA, he, because cult leaders are always he's, because men are the only ones self-righteous enough to believe it's God talking to them and not their own ego or mental illness, a woman will stop and say, am I crazy? But a man will think, hey, I must be pretty special hearing all these voices in my head, maybe I should write this shit down and start a club. And then at some point, he will start talking about the need to sacrifice. And before you know it, he's handing you an AK. There's a bunch of his babies crying, some suckling your wife's breasts while she pours antifreeze into a vat of Kool-Aid, looking around wild-eyed at all these bitches she's going to kill off, and the abandoned building you live in with a bunch of lunatics is full of tear gas. We are back. Op. Episode 38. Episode 38. Woo. It just feels like yester month that we recorded. <laughs> that was a familiar voice. Yeah. There in the beginning. I chuckled. Been a little nostalgic to the earlier days of TCK. I chuckled seven times and then that ending. Oh, I just love the way he just drops you off. Dunk. <laughs> now, for you fans of, of uh, Jack Luna and Dark Topic and the earlier 1159 stuff, don't get excited. He's He's not. He's still... On his own path. He just wanted to make a return for this one and say hello. You guys had a bit of a com combine a compatriot relationship with the Ant Hill kids. It was going to be something you guys batted around as like even a brutal or something. It was gonna be a brutal episode. Yeah. Yeah. Cause originally this was in the earlier days I thought this is too bad for TCK, which is really saying something. <laughs> that we're now here doing it. <laughs> Well, it's saying something 
about the case itself, considering uh, I've covered, you know, cases like um, Ed Gein and and Carl Tanzler and uh, Ed Kemper. So if if this is too bad to cover, then that, I think that says a lot about what we're getting ready to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Now the more brutal stuff of this is going to come in the later in the series. Um, today we're just kind of establishing the basis for all this and the lead in the leader. Um, but yeah, it's going to eventually get really bad. So do you want to set expectation now as far as the series goes? No. Okay. But we are talking about our first cult today here on TCK Op. And that's that's exciting. I'm excited. A cult spearheaded by a smelly bearded hippie with a permanent case of diarrhea and an almost absolute hatred of professional medical attention. Yum. Gross. Today we're talking about Roche Terrio and the Anhill Kids. <laughs> I can't believe you. Did you Google that? Did you Google how to say his name? I did. Okay. I, did. I was like, that. you pulled that off. I was like, I, I was about to go, do you think that name is similar to? <laughs> now, his name is, it's pronounced Roche Terrio. That's, mm-hmm. how you, that's how you're supposed to say it. But it's spelled Rock Theriot. Well, <laughs> Rock, it's spelled R-O-C-H. For, just to make it easier on me, I'm going to call him Rock the rest of the episode because one if you're getting upset about the way I pronounce the name of a brutal, disgusting cult leader that murdered and raped, um, then you should enter your bedroom, look in the mirror, pull down your pants, turn around, spread your butt cheeks, grab the nearest thing, the nearest blunt object, and shove it sideways right up your ass. Because <laughs> fuck this guy, uh, Rock Terriot. That's how it, it looks like it should be pronounced. But yes. The way it's supposed to be pronounced, Roche Terrio. <laughs> Yay. Roche Terrio sounds like one of those candies that you get only at Christmas time. Yeah, that your grandma brings and it smells like mo- mothballs. It's covered in like raisin bits or like coconut or something. I remember my grandpa used to bring, put mothballs on his boat cover, and I've never seen those anywhere. I don't even know where he bought them at. I don't even know. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, those? yeah. Yeah. They, they're supposed to keep moths away, but I've never... Where did he buy... The, do they just have a store for old people where they sell mothballs and... and uh, What's those? Weathers Originals. <laughs> Weathers. And the candies that look... That come in the cellophane strawberry wrapping. <laughs> like, where do you get those? Because those come out every Christmas. No, I will tell you, I will tell you this, that... Mothballs used to be, you know, like when you go to the counter at the gas station, there's five hour energies just sitting there. Yes. So mothballs were at the front counter and in probably close to every aisle in department stores back in the day. And have you ever wondered why we don't use mothballs anymore? I haven't, but now I'm kind of wondering. The reason is, is because back in the day when they used mothballs, there was no such thing as synthetic fiber. So all of our clothes were made of natural fiber and moths would eat will eat natural fiber but they won't touch anything that has a synthetic blend in it. Uh, and so even the fucking moths are vegan. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's why. So everybody always had moth balls all over the Portland place. Portland moths. <laughs> <laughs> synthetic blend they won't touch synthetic blend toast. 
Now, this is going to be a three-part series because there's a lot of meat on this one. But before we get started, Op, I got a question for you. Okay. What's the closest... Close... What's the closest... <laughs> what's the closest you ever came to joining a cult aside from being a Mormon? Oh, okay. Um, oof. Let's see. There. W- okay. I've got one. There was a girl that had a real bad sinus problem growing up. I'm excited. I don't even, I can't even like predict where this is going. And she had really, she had really thick red hair and a mm-hmm. bad sinus problem, but it was the first grade and she was my friend. And, and I didn't understand why she talked the way she, cause she, everything she said would like really stop <laughs> not like this. And I was like, as a first first grade, I was like, it sounds like you have a stuffy nose. You know, so I remember being at recess with her and I would constantly like I thought this would work. I constantly would just tell her, Hey, hey, let's do something together. What? Okay, let's both do this. <laughs> <laughs> and I would try to get her to clear her sinuses all the all the time because I thought I could change it so suddenly she's like oh my gosh i could talk normal now (laughs) so this girl she's my friend though you know and i could never fix her sinus problems which made me sad but she was also like apex predator oh my god that word again (laughs) i love it apex predator sticker collector like her parents must have been rich or something because she had the best stickers. And let's be honest, how many stickers do you have to collect to be an apex predator in sticker collecting? Three? Okay. Maybe five? <laughs> There's not a competing... I mean, if you've got seven stickers, you're probably, in your group of friends, the apex predator of sticker collecting. You are the Bear grills of sticker <laughs> collecting because nobody else gives a shit. Okay, but let me just let me define her sticker collection. So most most kids my age, the, the kids that could breathe through their mouth, um, would take your stickers, and we all had like sticker books, and you'd stick the stickers on the pages, and you then you, that was your collection, right? No, no, no. This girl, she had sticker books that had cellophane cover pages. And she would never stick the stickers to the pages. She would keep them loose behind the cellophane. And these were like archival quality books that she had. So, and if you look sideways at her sticker book, the first like 30 pages were very thin because that's where all the thin stickers were. But the last 20 pages blew up that book so thick because those were the puff stickers. She had puff stickers. And they were all loose. Like she, she would cut them out so that there was still paper backing around them and everything. And she had ones that were, uh, you know, metallic and and see through, and it was crazy. But everybody followed her sticker collection, and we all got our own sticker collections. Uh, but the thing that made her different was. Every once in a while at recess, she'd be like, I'm giving away a sticker today. Oh, yeah. And I hope she held on to that because it's probably worth over $11 yeah. today. But she didn't, collection. but she knew how to draw a crowd. So she would say, I'm giving away a sticker today. And then she, we would go in the middle of the open air basketball place, which had like a little brick wall around every corner of it. And she would sit in the corner of the brick like wall. Like you guys are and dealing heroin. 
we would gather around with our sticker books Mm -hmm. and she would open to a page and sometimes it got crazy because we'd see she'd open to a puff sticker page and the crowd go nuts. We'd be like, Oh my gosh. Now did she collect a certain character or was it just any sticker she could get her hands on? Didn't matter. But see, once again, this is what year was this? What year would this have been? First grade. So I probably would, it would have been probably around 47, (laughs) 81 or 82. So we're, we're seeing probably a lot of He-Man stickers. We're probably seeing, um, maybe Halloween stickers, Michael Myers stickers. We're seeing maybe, um, I don't know what else, a lot of hairband stickers. Yeah. But the thing was, and this is why I think she had rich parents, was she, her stickers were off the chain. Like she had ones that you couldn't find anywhere else. And, uh, she would pull one out. She got those, (laughs) she couldn't find them anywhere. She got those limited edition stickers. Yeah. (laughs) She pulled puff sticker out though. We would lose our minds and then she would proceed to pick somebody and she was smart about it. She never just picked her best friend or anything like that. She would, she would, she'd share the wealth. So we all felt like we had a chance and that motivated you to build your sticker collection. And I don't know, I can't even remember how it ended, but it was such a blur. And I felt like I was part of a community and I, every day when we go to the, like the, the dollar store or anywhere, if there were stickers, I was like, mom, can I get these stickers? She's like, no. And you know, so my, my supply was limited. Hers was never ending. She was the leader. She couldn't breathe, but she was the leader. And you saw the er- the early development of a of a future cult leader. Yeah, right there. Was, she had the supply, and she deter- She she had she created the demand, and then limited the supply. A hundred percent. She was a wizard. She probably runs a church today. I gotta say, you know, of all the questions I've asked you in the beginnings of TCKs. This is probably my favorite answer. <laughs> I still think I don't have closure. I don't I don't have closure. That's on because this one. she's somewhere right now up in the Ozarks <laughs> living on a commune, sitting on a throne with a massive bush and hairy legs, <laughs> praying to the sun uh, above like fifty other people that smell terrible. <laughs> and she's still got and now her sticker book is 10 inches thick, <laughs> and she still supplies them with those sticker hitters, as Theo Vaughn calls them, hitters. That's what she does. She's amazing. Well, uh, for me, Yop, the closest I ever came to joining, technically, I guess I joined it, was whenever I was, I was 18 years old, a senior in high school, I became a volunteer firefighter for two weeks. Oh, you did? Yeah, because, you know, I was young, and I worked at this gas station, and this guy came in. He was an adult, and he would sit there and talk to me all day while I worked at the gas station. And now looking back, it was kind of maybe a little creepy, because he was probably in his late 30s, early 40s. I was 18, and he really liked hanging out with me. And there's some, like, now that I think about it, some moments that I, like, forget. I remember (laughs) a lot. There's, like, long periods of... Like, forget, like, there's moments you forget about when you're a construction worker, forget? No, it's like, you know, he'd be like, hey, you come out to my truck for a minute, and then I would wake up and my shift would be over. Be like, oh, oh like, that was odd. Like, uncle forget. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, and man. but <laughs> no, this guy's name, I believe if I remember I believe his name was Mike, but uh he was just I don't know. He liked hanging out with me and then he t- he was a volunteer firefighter and he talked me into jo- becoming a volunteer fighter f- firefighter and I watched backdraft. You know? <laughs> I liked backdraft. <laughs> yeah. And in my head, I thought I was doing back I thought I was going to be doing backdraft shit. <laughs> I thought I was going to be jumping three-story buildings from roof to roof with a child or maybe a Doberman pincher in my arms <laughs> and then scaling a building while people cheered from the sidewalk. I thought I was going to be kicking in doors while wood fell on fire around me. Here's the problem. I grew up in a town of like nine people. We don't even have a two-story building. <laughs> we don't even have sidewalks. There's not even a place for the people to congregate to cheer me on. And the only thing that ever catches fire in my hometown is a, is a, is a trailer because it had a meth lab in it. And the only thing burning up in it is a couple of mutt Rottweiler puppies that were malnourished. <laughs> Maybe you get a call if you're a volunteer firefighter in my hometown because some teens set a hay bale on fire. And and aside from that, it's like car wrecks where a drunk driver ran into a telephone pole and he has to be arrested. That's why they're volunteers. Not a lot of special training needed, right? Yeah. The job is not exactly fire. <laughs> but I was only 18. I'd seen backdraft. Yeah. And I was like, fuck yeah. I want to be a firefighter. So... It started off from the get-go. This guy's weird, but on the get-go, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll be a volunteer firefighter. And he took me to this place called Stanford, and I had to do like a questionnaire and an interview with the cult leader <laughs> in this fire fire department. It, it was the god of the volunteer firefighters. It was a like middle-aged to older middle-aged overweight fellow. And he like asked me a bunch of questions. It was weird. It felt religious. Yeah. And then they let me know that I had made the cut. But I don't think <laughs> anybody had ever not made the cut. <laughs> I don't think my answers would have mattered. I think if he'd have said, what are you into? And I would have said, child pornography, rape, and really just, actually, I think I may be an arsonist. He would have been <laughs> like, you made the cut. You're a volunteer firefighter. Do you have a way to get to the fires? And I would be like, not going to be a problem because I'll be the first one there. (laughs) Yeah. Not going to be a problem. I was already there. (laughs) You made the cut. You're a volunteer firefighter now. Even if I had to get there on a rascal because I was morbidly obese and I couldn't even walk. If I had one of those gelatinous growths. On the inside of my legs that turn purple and look all wrinkled. They look like a potato. You know how they've got the, like, creases in them and the dots? Yeah. He would have been like, don't need to ask you any questions. You made the cut. You're in the cult. The only problem we have now is sewing three fire department suits together so that we can have one that fits you. We're just going to drape a a fire-retarded blanket over you so you can rascal into the trailers and get those puppies. So that was weird. Yeah, that was weird. Sounds that weird. was weird. And then it got weirder because the fire department that I was a part of was out in the middle of nowhere beside an, ab- not abandoned, it was a once elementary school that hadn't been in an elementary school for probably like 20 years. Oh. And so it was an empty elementary school fire department, middle of nowhere. I'm talking bum fucked Egypt, 
Like the only thing there is cow shit and tobacco fields. Wow. Wow. And I went there with, first off, the whenever I was around other firefighters, they really liked talking about the lights that they got for their cars. <laughs> like the KC lights kind of the, thing? The lights that you can reach in and just smack on the roof of your car like a Domino's delivery driver. <laughs> That's something yeah. they were really proud of. Oh, this is 500 volts. Puts out 9,000 9, lumens. <laughs> Which is something I didn't really care about. I wanted. I was more about kicking in the doors and jumping right. <laughs> the three-story buildings. I didn't care about getting there. I think for them, it was a power move to get there and get back. They liked how it felt for the vehicles to get out of the way. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But then, one day, it was just me and my cop at this remote fire. This is like a weekend of me being in the cult, in this volunteer fire department cult. <laughs> it was like a weekend. Nothing had happened. To the surprise of nobody but me. Not even a hay bale fire. And we were sitting there and Mike's like, well, since we're here, it was just me and him. He goes, since we're here, we might as well get some training in. <laughs> what does that and mean? And me being eight. What? What does that mean? <laughs> and me being 18. You need to keep in mind. I'm 18 and I played sports growing up. I was slender then. Slenderer than I am now. And Mike is in his late 30s, early 40s, and, and very overweight. And he goes, well, we got to get you in shape to be a firefighter. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So he had me go out into the bay where the fire trucks and the stuff is. And he made me put on a full firefighter costume. The mask, everything, the boots, all that. And then I had to carry an axe. And he's like, we're going to go on a run. But Mike was in shorts. Uh, a cutoff t-shirt and a pair of tennis shoes and we ran he, he wanted me to run laps around the school and he ran with me but he got tired first <laughs> i was <laughs> i was you? in full garb full firefighter get up and mike is like leaned over on his knees like <laughs> hold on hold on hold on and he was getting me into shape to be a firefighter. And I think looking back now, what was going on was he was fulfilling some kind of weird military desire in his head to be in charge of some kind of PT or something. He's one of those probably guys that was like, you know, I would have joined, but I'd have punched the drill instructor's lots out. <laughs> like that kind of guy. So, yeah. and then I quit. After that, I was like, okay, this is really stupid. And then I quit and I never talked to Mike again. And I think I had accidentally joined a cult. <laughs> you know, there's something that I've seen that I that recurs, and it happens a lot. And I wonder if there are a lot of mini cults around where there's just two or three people. But I see this. I've seen this. One time I was in a small town in Idaho, and I'm eating at a steakhouse. And there is a man sitting there who, and I, I, I'm, not over, I'm not over-exaggerating when I say, he had so much body that it was like dripping off of the seat. Like it was, the seat disappeared and he had buns and, and, and upper torso just dripping over the seat. It was like he was melting. He was a very large man. Yeah. <clears throat> but, but across the table from him was a very docile wife and then a very large daughter. And the way he talked, he had such composure and such absolute in his voice 
they 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 hang, they hung on every word he said and i'm like there's something really weird about this because i was kind of listening to what he was saying and half the stuff he was saying was super not even true you like know what well he'd be like he'd be like he'd be like well you know oh they had you know bill had me come over the other day and hey, they wouldn't have been able to fix that car had i not gotten in there and i had i had i not gotten in there and i'd had fixed that thing and pulled I, it was simple. It was simple to me. It was simple to me. Um, but a couple problems with that. One, I doubt Bill called him to fix his car. Two, there he's not getting into anything. <laughs> right. Like without a without a high lift. <laughs> Except for the volunteer fire department. <laughs> <laughs> but I but I, I'm a I was I was amazed and entranced by the fact that this guy somehow had some kind of a tractor beam over these people's brains. So it happens, I guess. Yeah. It does. Usually, I guess we'll get ahead of the story here, but, you know, most of the people that ended up being a victim of Rock Terrio and the Anhill kids were people that were impressionable and came from a, a, a very unfortunate background of abuse mm. and had low self-esteem. Ah. Um, and, you know, you know the two biggest cults in the United States? No. Uh, one is called... Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't like I said I'm bad with pronunciations, but I'm going to read it here. Democrate, Democrat, Democrats. Oh, Democrate. Yeah, Democrats. And then mm-hmm. the second one is Repub. Is it Republican? Republicans. Republican. Yeah. Republicans. Ah. Democrats and Republicans. Those are the two biggest cults right now in the United States. Crazy. And. You know, if you look at if you re- look at Democrates and Republicans, they don't even realize they're in a cult. No, and that's you know that's unfortunate. It's sad. It is. But we're gonna get on with the episode up. Anhill Kids, Roche Terrio, and the Anhill Kids. Yum. Now, Rock Roche Roche Terrio was born in Saguenay, Quebec. On May 16th, 1947, to some French-Canadian parents, his father, his name was Hyacinth, and his mother's name was Pirette, Pirette Theriault, Theriault. They were both devout Catholics. Now, all of the names in this, every single one of them, are French-Canadian names, Mm -hmm. and they are hard to pronounce, and I'm going to have a lot of problems with it, and that's going to be a reoccurring issue in all three parts of this series. So I want to get ahead of that, too. His father, his name is, like I said, Hyacinth. Hyacinth? It's spelled eight. You're you're looking at it, right? How do you you pronounce that? Hyacinth. Hyacinth and Mother Pirette? 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 Let's say Pirette. It'd be Pirette. 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 So his father, Hyacinth, and his mother, Pirette, Terrio, they're both the devout Catholics. Now... Catholics. His mother, Pure, Pure, she's pretty normal, pretty chill lady, uh, old school, you know, but but pretty chill. Everybody talks highly of her. Was she kind of uh, soft? Kind of soft, Pure. loving, pretty good mom. She's the she, kind of, keep in mind, this is the late 40s, early 50s. She's kind of, you know, she's probably like, you know, a, a typical day with her is probably like, hey, let's set up the old leather slip and slide. <laughs> on the hill that eventually ends up in a ravine full of briars and then covered in some slippery mercury and have a good time. That that kind of woman. Yeah. Pure it was the 40s, 50s. We didn't know the dangers of mercury and we didn't understand leather isn't a good slip and slotty 
material. Puree blended right in. <laughs> yeah. Right in. Good woman. His father, however, Roche Terrio's father, Hyacinth, was an absolute religious Catholic loony whose entire life revolved around not being very chill. Oh. Now, I imagine he just permanently had veins popping up on his beet red forehead, and he was constantly, like, accidentally, like, like letting out high-pitched farts because <laughs> of the amounts of men of muscle strain. Just very, very stressed about the Lord. Very, just like, oh, oh, oh. You remember Beavis and Butthead's principal? Yes. The one that's like, oh, oh, oh. And he just had veins, his eyes were, that's, that was, that was Roche's dad. He was a Catholic nut. <laughs> like a male version of Carrie's mom. Okay. <laughs> I don't think Carrie's mom was, was Catholic though, was she? Do you remember? Uh, I just remember she got it going on. What's that? Carrie's mom, she's got it going on, right? Oh, that was a big fail on your part because that was Stacy's mom. Ah, shoot. I always forget. Yeah, Stacy and Carrie, very close. Mm. It's understandable how. I was talking about Sissy Space at Carrie. Oh, the red one. Yeah, because are you calling her the red one because of the pig blood? Yeah. Or because of the period blood? Or because of the color of her hair? Yep. Rock was the second of seven children, and he was the oldest boy. And when you're the second of seven children, that makes you somewhat forgettable if you don't start a cult soon. Oh. And I think maybe that's the... But yeah, second of seven children, oldest boy. And in 1953, when Roche was six years old, his daddy picked him up and moved them to Thetford Mines with his family. Now, Thetford Mines Op is unfortunately for everybody that lives there, and as was and was until the year 2012, so keep that in mind, an asbestos mining community also in Quebec. It, it was still running in 2012? In 2012, they shut it down finally. What? what? <sighs> Are you wondering why? Now, we still use asbestos in certain materials. Asbestos uh, has been replaced because, you know, up until, I don't know, the, the mid-80s, early 80s, Asbestos was very was in a lot of stuff. It was in building materials. It was a fire retardant. It was uh, used in a lot of stuff. Brake brake pads, um, yeah. and then we slowly started phasing it out and replacing it with other materials. But some things can't replace asbestos, so we still use it to this day in certain things. You can even get brakes today from a company called Raybestos, and they used to use asbestos in brake pads. Yeah, they didn't change the name, but they stopped using it. I mean, it's a very all the health issues aside, it's a very, uh, very useful material when it comes to fire retardant. Hmm. So, yeah, his daddy picked him up in 53. Roche is six years old, moves him to this uh, asbestos mining community called Thetford Mines. And you could probably get a house there for like seven toonies and a, and a lead line <laughs> tin can of maple syrup because of all of the uh, asbest- asbestosis mesothelioma and lung cancer that was likely running rampant and nobody knew why. They were probably like, this is the 50s. They're probably like, maybe we're not playing enough hockey. <laughs> Canada. And that's a stereotype. Uh, uh, but yeah, that's the uh, side effects of as being exposed to asbestos. Um, it's called asbestosis, mesothelioma, and lung cancer. Oh, that's what all those commercials are for. You ever see yeah. those in the middle of the day? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, Thetford Mines, very small community. Um, 
I know that in I couldn't find the the population in the fifties, but in twenty twenty two they've got about twenty six thousand people. I would imagine that's probably safe to say probably doubled from the fifties. That's the way most communities work. Mm. So if I had to guess, I would say they had between ten and fifteen thousand people in the fifties. Very small town. It's a small town still to this day. But the most popular activities at the time in Thetford Mines, outside of producing lung toxins, were hockey and making maple syrup. This oh. is not a joke. So your your joke from before is actually real. Not a joke. Not Favorite a joke. things to do aside from mining lung toxins is hockey and maple syrup. Well. It's the most Canadian place on the face of the earth. Everybody <laughs> there probably says guy and buddy at the end of every sentence. Hey, <laughs> buddy. Want to go play hockey, guy? I'm sorry, pal. Now, the uh, the Terrios, Rock's family, were described by neighbors as, quote, backwoods people. And I don't really know what that means in a small hillbilly town that mines asbestos. <laughs> like, how, how, <laughs> how extreme do they have to be to get that title? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. When everybody here is backwoods people. What do you have to do to be referred to by the backwoods people <laughs> as backwoods people? <laughs> now, Roche's dad was a member of an authoritarian fascist group of Catholics called the Beret Blancs, which translate to the White Berets. Oh. And, and their main goal was to take control of everything and put it in the hands of the Catholic Church. Oh. <laughs> I was actually able to find newspaper articles from as recently as 2009 talking about the White Berets, so it's very possible they're still in existence today. Wow. It's like the Knights Templar, but like thieves. <laughs> yes. But keep in mind, this is an authoritarian fascist group, the Watt Berets. But uh, everybody knows that a group like this that is religion-powered always ends well for everyone involved. <laughs> Does. It's interesting to keep in mind and remember, though, that his mother is a sweet, normal mother that just likes to cook and, you know, clean and be a mother of the 50s. And his father is in the Watt Berets. And I would just like to be a fly on the wall in this household when Hyacinth comes ran, comes in, like, busting into the door, ranting about the Jews in his <laughs> Watt Berets costume. And poor little Pire is just making a nice pea soup and poutine dinner and agreeing with everything he says. <laughs> She's just like, yeah, I know, honey. Those goddamn Jews. Uh, do you want your cup of syrup with ice and a straw? <laughs> now, <clears throat> I just choked on my own throat. <laughs> which is stupid. That's how stupid I am. I just choked on my own throat. Uh. Every single Sunday... Father Hyacinth would force Rock and his brothers and sisters to go with him around neighborhoods, collecting money for their white beret cause. Wow. They would knock on their doors, on their neighbors' doors, and the second the person answered, the children would all drop to their knees. This is true. Drop to their knees and begin praying as Hyacinth began ranting about Catholic Catholicism. Wow. Do you ever do anything like this, go door to door? One time when me and my buddy, Aura, 
We tried to go door to door selling toys and stuff that we didn't want. It was like a DoorDash yard sale, but it, it was ran by eight year olds, and we had absolutely nothing anybody wanted to purchase. It was like we had a bucket with some old Legos in it, some old baseball cards, um, maybe a Pokemon or two, and probably some Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo games that we didn't want to play anymore. And people were like, no, why are your parents letting you do this? This is harassment. No, I've never gone door to door doing anything crazy. <laughs> but yeah, so Hyacinth, the father here, would make Rock and his brothers go door to door and support his white beret cause, preaching about uh, Catholicism and how they need to take over the world. And this is way worse than what the Nor- Mormons do. Honestly, <laughs> they weren't even on bicycles. And yeah. I'd honestly rather deal with ding dong ditchers than this shit. <sighs> Now, Roche hated this very much. He thought it was absolutely absolutely humiliating. It caused him to get bullied at school because he would knock on the door and then have to hit his knees and start praying. And he'd look up and Billy Bob, eight-year-old, nine-year-old Billy Bob would be standing there holding a kitten by the back of its scruff because he was just punching it. And he was the bully from school. And there's little Roche on his knees praying on his doorstep. It just gave the bullies ammunition to pick on him, and it just caught all this caused Roche to hate and resent the Catholic Church. He hated the Catholic Church by the time he was a teenager. Uh, I don't blame him. Right? No, not at all. As Ugh. children, the Terrios grew accustomed to pain via weird little games. Uh, one such game that they played was with their dad, and that game was called Bone. Op. And it's oh. and if you're imagining something like with complex directions, like a Mattel game, it wasn't very ima- imaginative. How, how do you think Bone would be played? If you just had to guess, how does one play Bone? Just please tell me it, rega- it, it, it does not require anyone's lap. Lap? No, no. Okay. No, not that Bone. Okay. Not that Bone. The rules of Bone were pretty simple. Whenever they would be eating dinner at the kitchen table, the whole family, they would all put on boots beforehand, and then during dinner, they would just fucking kick the shit out of each other's shins until somebody tapped out. What? And they thought it was a fun. It was a blast. The yeah. Terrio household. When we were kids, we played Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. So yeah, you would just shin check. Boom. The person sitting across from you or the person sitting beside you until and everybody's giggling and having a good time and spilling their poutine in their lap and just having the time of their life and their shins are bleeding and <laughs> and it's just so much fun. And that's bone until somebody taps. Yeah. yeah. Now, I do want to mention this. Rock would later claim in his adult years when he's sitting in prison that his father, Hyacinth, was also very physically abusive outside of these little games that they would all play. But others, including his father himself, have all refuted it. All the other Terrio children grew up to be normal, happy, productive adults. Every single one of these kids grew up to be law-abiding, contributing members of society with their own families. Um, everybody, all the other kids say this is absolute bullshit. Hyacinth was a Catholic loony, but he was never physically abusive to the kids. Um, and they all had a good upbringing. And it's also important to point out that uh, Roche is a well-established liar. Where do you where do you sit on that on the I think he's full of shit. Okay. I think he's absolutely full of shit. Um he will he he would he will say anything Rock Terrio will and did 
not will anymore, he's dead now, but did and would say anything needed for attention, to get him attention, pity, it didn't matter what, whether it was bad attention, good attention, pity, uh, almost like some weird version of, of um, uh, Munchausen syndrome, self-Munchausen syndrome, mm. where any kind of attention was good attention. He loved being the center of attention, and he'll say anything to get that. Creepy. His father, Hyacinth, was later quoted as saying, quote, <laughs> I raised seven children, and he's the only one that turned out like that. Ugh. And you'll see what we mean later when he says, like that, because he really turned out. I mean, <laughs> Roche was an absolute trash can of a child growing up. He was known for stealing and lying and manipulating. He would take money and cigarettes from his parents and then blame it on his brothers and sisters. He was also extremely arrogant. Imagine like a, a Conor McGregor's arrogance trapped in a small little French Canadian boy's body. Oh, wow. Very full of himself. Very arrogant. Like to steal. Like to lie. Like to manipulate. From an early age. That's not, that's like, that's like if you had George St. Pierre and Conor McGregor have a baby. Uh, you don't like George St. Pierre? No, I'm just saying to give your give you your locality and, you know, place of origin. But then I need to really double down on the fact that Roche Terrio was a fucking liar. Later in his memoirs, whenever he's an adult, he'll make a lot of bullshit claims about his childhood up. I'm not going to go into them because it's pointless because they're not true. He'll make claims of having healing powers. He makes claims that at one point as a child, he went and spent days with, with a mother bear and was raised as one of her cubs. Um, all kinds oh, wow. of ridiculous bullshit that is in no way true. Um, he was like Brian Williams before Brian Williams was Brian Williams. <laughs> uh, just lying for attention, uh, lying to make himself feel, feel superior to others. Yes, Roche is an established liar. All of these stories have all pretty much been disproved and 100% made up. So for time's sake and ease of storytelling, we're just going to stick to the facts here. Okay. With that being said, you know, Op, you talked about him being like George St. Pierre and Conor McGregor. Um, and there were several differences. Um, uh, two big ones. One, Roche Terrio couldn't fight his way out of a wet paper bag. And two, unfortunately, uh, a very big difference in them and 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 Roche Terrio. And this is important. It will come in to it, it will it will be important later. And this was confirmed by many many people. He had a ridiculously massive cock. Oh no. Like almost to the point of being a disability. Oh, no. That's how big Rock Terrio's dick was. The boy was packing a real waste level Canadian swamp donkey. <laughs> I mean, the Catholic Lord had really blessed him with this flesh colored kickstand. <laughs> Many girls talked about it. He slept with a lot of women. It's been confirmed. It was an issue. How big his dick was. He actually had to go to the doctor one time for malnourishment, and the doctor, doctors concluded that his penis was actually requiring all the nutrients from his body, <laughs> and they had to put him on double rations. What? <laughs> double there's syrup a, rations. There's a movie in They're there like, you gotta do, you, you gotta double down on the maple syrup because your cock is sucking up all the vitamins and minerals. Okay, I may have made that up. I may have made that up. He would—he didn't have to go for malnourishment because his dick. He was, he was having to feed two people like a seven-month pregnant woman. <laughs> but um, 
He had a disability in the form of a giant cock. No. Now, later on this, Rock claims that uh, whenever he realized how big was his dick was as a child, it was the first sign that he knew he was special. Oh, darn it. Yeah. It's kind of like when I realized I could move my kneecap. <laughs> I used to fucking blow kids' minds with that. I'd be like, hey, check this out. Slide, we'll just move. Can you move your kneecap? I I'll can. show you next time we hang out. If you straighten out your leg and relax it, you can move your kneecap back and forth. Oh, yeah. That's fun. I thought I was unique. <laughs> so this dick with legs in 1961. Oh, yeah. At 13 years old, what? Well, no, I was just, I mean, <clears throat> 61, obviously. Proof sets, half dollar, quarter dollar, and dime consisted of 90% silver and only 10% copper, which is totally, as you can imagine, it's totally crazy because yeah. other than that, everything else was 75, 25 yeah, copper 25. nickel. And, I was thinking uh, that it sounded like it was. The cent was 95% copper and 5% tin zinc, which was crazy because in 43, there was such a higher level of zinc. 61, it was kind of an earth shattering year. I mean- for coin collectors, yeah. Crazy. Completely irrelevant to this, but yeah, for coin collectors. Such a small percentage of our listeners are coin collectors too, but keep going. Uh, yeah, I know. It's just sometimes when you say a year, it just like it's like life freezes around me, like the like the yeah. Neo the scene where Neo's dodging bullets. For and, for a lot of for literally everybody that is you. Yeah. Wow. Can I can I go on? Hmm? Oh yeah. Hmm? 1961, yes. I hate you. 1961, like I was saying, 13-year-old cock with legs, Roche, tops out in school in the seventh grade. Now, a lot of people say he dropped out of school. That's not necessarily, you'll hear that he drops out of school. That's not necessarily true. In this little hick town, seventh grade was the highest that they offered. Oh, really? In school. And if you wanted to pursue a further education into high school, you had to go to a, the next town over. So it, it's not really, he didn't drop out. He just topped out in this school. And a lot of the kids there did go on to go to high school in the next town over, but he wasn't one of them. And it didn't matter because Roche felt like he was too smart for school anyway. He was too good for it. It was below him. Huh. So did he drop out? No. No, but he did choose to not further his education like a lot of the other ones did. Okay. He he dropped he so he doesn't he he finishes school in the seventh grade and begins to shovel snow, mow lawns, and hang out at bars. Sounds fulfilling. I mean, at thirteen, fourteen years old, this sounds like a blast. Oh uh, yeah, that's probably a- making not. I mean, for Thetford Mines economy, okay money. I mean, oh, how yeah. much was a pop cost here? A nickel. 12 cents. Yeah. <clears throat> now, girls did like Roche uh, all the way to the end. He never had an issue with girls. Between his arrogance, his charisma, and that flesh-colored dragon tail that was hanging off his fanny pack area, he had no trouble whatsoever getting his, getting 60s asbestos town vagina. <laughs> 
Wow. And asbestos was so ingrained in everything in Thetford Mines that rumors started circulating that going down on somebody from there as an outsider would result in you getting asthma. The, the men there actually ejaculated a fabric-like substance like a Spider-Man web-slinger because of all the asbestos. And I made that up. None of that was true. You could suck a dick there or lick a vagina there, and you wouldn't get asthma. You wouldn't need an inhaler a week later. But it was very unhealthy, the air. Everything there was super unhealthy. But yeah, Rock, with his big old cock and his arrogant attitude, girls loved him. Girls loved him. He was a real pussy slayer. In this hillbilly town. Uh, <laughs> what? I just... I don't have... I'm kind of just still stuck on 1961. And Now you, as somebody with a massive cock... <laughs> did... Did you have this issue growing up? Uh, Is that how you flirted? Would you just walk up and slap it on the table? Like, hey, I'm off. No, I was always too friendly to fall into that category. I was every girl's friend. 1965 off at 18 years old. Roche renounces his Catholic upbringing, which really rustles daddy's jimmies. He's, his father was not happy about that. We have went into the white berets and how really super, super duper into Catholicism he was. But in 65 at 18 years old, Roche is like, I'm out. Sick of this shit. And a lot of that was being jaded from his upbringing, having to drop to his knees and pray at doors and hand out literature for the white berets. And in 1967, two years older, in 1967, two years later, at 20 years old, he meets a woman from a nearby town named Frances Grenier at a dance hall, and they get married on November 11th of that same year. So within a year, he meets and marries this woman, Francine Grenier, who he met at at a dance hall. Now they do, they build a house one quarter mile from his parents' house, still in the woods, still in the backwoods of Thetford Mines here. And in January of 1969, Roche and Francis, they have their first son, and that little fella's name is Roche Sylvain is born. And whenever he was born, the doctor was like, congratulations, ma'am, you just gave birth to a seven pound, six ounce dick. <laughs> wow. Uh. <laughs> Roche gets a job at the fire department performing inspections. So he's a he's a fire inspector. Weird because he had no background in that whatsoever. Now nowadays you have to like I think you have to go to college actually to be a fire inspector. You might. But yeah. This yeah, is Stetford Mines. He had a good job. This is a really good job. It's a good paying job. He was making the modern equivalent to seventy grand a year, United States. And uh, they're in Little Thetford Mines, which, you know, in a town where a house, I mean, in the 60s, late 60s, a house would probably go for the modern equivalent of, I would guess, $25,000, um, yeah. $70,000 grand a year is killer, killing it. Yeah, that's a that's a good amount of money. I mean, you think about it today, We rarely does somebody make enough money to have, if they really buckled down, they could have just paid off their house with that yearly amount and still had... 50% of their income left over. Well, that's 70 grand a year converted by inflation to modern standards. That's 70 grand a year today. Oh. Realistically, then it's probably like 30, 35 grand a year. But if you're making enough money in one year, to, even if it takes all of it, 
to pay off your house, you're doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. April 1971, so uh, uh, two years, a little more than two years after they have their first son, Roche Sylvan. Um, their second son is born, and his name is Francois. Francois. April of 1971. Francois. 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 He's born. These kids, not important because he's a shit father and doesn't give a fuck about anything that he that he births, really, wow. that much, all that much. Yeah. Um, everything, uh, as far as Roche Terrio is concerned, the only thing that matters is Roche Terrio. Mm. And he will prove that time and time again in the future. He wasn't abusive or anything like that to these two, but he wasn't really... I would say, what's the word? Present? Ah, yeah. 1971, same year that his son Francois is born at 24 years old, Rock starts suffering from severe duodenal ulcers. And these are these kind of ulcers, they're sores on the lining of your stomach or small intestine. Um, very painful. They cause a lot of abdominal pain. Have you ever had an ulcer? Um, I don't know. I know half your stomach is Kevlar. Yeah, half my stomach's Kevlar, but that's I don't true know if too. Any, well, yeah. I'm not making a joke. Half stu- yeah. he had he had so many hernias yeah. from heaving that big fat <laughs> cock around his whole life that he had, they had to replace his stomach with a Kevlar Ugh. blanket. It's not very true. Um, I I don't know. That's the answer to that <laughs> that question. Where, how did you get all those hernias? <clears throat> I'm not quite sure. Um, You've always worked in computers. I've had it. You've never I, worked on the railway or in the coal mines. How the hell do you get that many hernias topping on a at a desk? I've always had a six pack ever since I was a little kid. I even even though I'm fat you right a, now, you actually had a seven pack. <laughs> <laughs> I have one underneath my fat layer. But, um, so I don't know. I don't know if it's just my stomach was always sort of overdeveloped. So it, it was susceptible to fissures or something. I don't know, but that's what I'm going to start saying when people call tell me I've got a fat gut. I'm like, I don't have a fat gut. My stomach is just overdeveloped. <laughs> yeah, there you go. My mom says I'm husky. So Roche, he gets these, he starts developing these severe duodenal ulcers. The doctors end up removing part of his stomach to try to ease these symptoms. But not long after that first operation, they decide he needs a second operation. Mm. And the time leading up to that that second operation, Roche spends that entire summer leading up to that second surgery studying medical textbooks. And by the time it came for him to go under the knife a second time, he knew the entire procedure from front to back. Oh, and wow. um, this is a time whenever they didn't put him to sleep for this, so they're awake. So he can... And this is like... The worst version of those guys under Facebook videos of people doing trade work. You ever see like a dude pouring concrete? There's always like a million concrete dudes that are like, oh, there's too much water. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's going to be brittle concrete. <laughs> those forms are terrible. Or like welders. Welding videos are the worst. There's always, it doesn't matter how beautiful the weld is, the welders in there are like, yeah, I'd like to see it from the backside. Too much heat. It doesn't matter what it looks like. There's those backseat drivers, right? This is the worst version of that. You're trying to operate on a dude, and he's like, I don't know. Do you want to use that to take out my intestines? I don't know. Did you see my cock? By the way, look, I know you're busy, but look down at that thing. 
You think that could be why I'm getting these ulcers? <laughs> Sucking all the nutrients out of the lining of my stomach, causing these ulcers. <laughs> Anyways, that would be frustrating as a as a doctor. Now, after the second surgery, uh, Roche begins experiencing a lot of vomiting and stomach cramps. Almost everything almost doubles in worseness. So he goes back to the doctor. And when he goes back, the doctors tell him that he's actually suffering not only from these duodenal ulcers, but he's something suffering from something called suffering from something called dumping syndrome. Huh. Dumping uh, syndrome. That's just on the other side of the duodenum inside the body. <laughs> uh, fun. Now, dumping syndrome op causes food to move through the system too quickly before it gets broken down the way it should be. And it makes it hard for the body to pull nutrients from the food that you eat. Mm. Um, and the result in this is usually uh, diarrhea just 20 minutes after you eat anything. So you eat something 20 minutes later, diarrhea, stomach cramps, because your food is just moving things through your system too quickly. I would imagine it makes dinner and a movie dates like very stressful. Very stressful, very short. <laughs> now, between the surgeries... This new diagnosis, this is when rock starts to slip. This is when things kind of start to go off the rails. Um, he turns into a hypochondriac. He starts telling people that his insides are made of plastic and that cancer is inevitable. He also becomes, so that's changes outwardly, but there's also changes in his personality. Um, he, he becomes more reckless. He becomes more erratic. He becomes even more narcissistic than he already was and less caring than he already was of his family because the world already revolved around Roche as far as he was concerned. Yeah. But what little he did care about his family, about his sons, about his wife, even less when he gets this diagnosis. Dang. He quits his very well-paying job at the fire department as a fire inspector and instead starts trying to get into woodworking, which is something he had never shown an interest in before. I love woodworking. All right. His uh, parents give him a loan. <laughs> His parents, Hyacinth and, P Hyacinth and Pirette, give him a loan of money to buy all the tools he needs to get his woodworking, quote, business, unquote, off the ground. And uh, Roche begins making wood crafts to sell around town, but mainly wooden beer mugs. And I, I don't know about you, but I know anytime I want to drink something, I think it's best to put it in something porous and absorb absorbent. <laughs> yeah. I like to use dishes that maintain the smell of whatever I put them on, <laughs> put in or on them so that they cannot be washed out. I hate it when I eat sardines off of a off of a non-absorbent plate and then I clean that and I can't smell that fishy goodness. When I go to put a slice of cake on it. <laughs> really drives me up the goddamn wall. <laughs> he starts selling these wooden beer mugs that he was making at uh, swap meets and bars, really anywhere where he could peddle this garbage. Um, <laughs> and on these changes in his personality, he also starts demanding. Now, before, prior to this diagnosis, he wanted his wife to dress more conservatively, long, sexy denim dresses um, that were they didn't have an opening or a slit in them they're just very restrictive um, if you were being chased by a bear you had to take short like fucking choppy steps and just run really you had to run like Marvin the Martian 
because the denim was restricting in this dress. Um, that's what he wanted her to wear. He wanted her to be covered up all the time. But after he gets this diagnosis, he starts demanding that his wife, she starts wearing, he wants her to wear mini skirts. And he wants her to reveal herself more to strangers. And he talks about nothing but sex with her. Mm. That's all he wants to talk about with her. Drove her nuts. And his sudden increased sex drive was probably very stressful for her. For her I would imagine as having sex with him was probably like repeatedly running ass first into a down telephone pole. <laughs> yeah. I mean, imagine this cock with a face doesn't want anything anymore but to put itself inside you. That would be difficult. That, that would, would be, be stressful. Yeah, it would. His sex drive suddenly went through the roof. It's weird. I don't see the correlation here between between finding out that you have terminal diarrhea and wanting to fuck a lot more. It doesn't make any sense <laughs> to me, but yeah, he's like, hey, need you to just take off those denim dresses? She was denim from head to toe. She was like a, a Muslim woman if she grew up in Nashville, Tennessee in the 50s. <laughs> It was like denim up to the below the eyes and then a denim cap. <laughs> like if uh, Uncle, what's Cousin It from the Adams Family were made of denim instead of hair. Uh, but now he wants her to wear mini skirts and all that. And he's just talking about fucking all the time. And, <sighs> and, in, <laughs> and in this sudden interest in sex and all this stuff, he does go to his wife's parents, his in-laws, and ask them, his in-laws... If he can open up, an, open up a nudist colony on their farm, what? they wow, very really quickly committed. and without really thinking about it said no. <laughs> I don't even like asking my father-in-law for help moving a couch. <laughs> can you imagine? What are your in-laws like? Uh, minor, minor uh, salt of the earth. Uh, Would they let you open up a nudist colony? Do they have a farm? <laughs> they have a farm, and no, they would not. They wouldn't let you open up a nudist colony? No, not enough. Nope. How would they respond to you setting down at your meal of meatloaf? I know you guys <laughs> eat a lot of meatloaf there and cornbread, and, and you're like, I was thinking, what's your father-in-law's name? Uh, Rick. Hey, Rick, I was thinking, and you've got a little bit of meatloaf. It's you got a beard, so it's swinging off of a beard hair. <laughs> You're talking, and there's a, on the other side a little piece of cornbread, and you're like, I was thinking. <laughs> so, look, you got all that. How many acres does he have? Uh, 11. You got 11 acres here, Rick. By the way, what's your mother, your mother-in-law's name? Mother, it's Teresa. Mother Teresa, actually. By the way, Teresa, meatloaf, phenomenal. Love the layer of ketchup <laughs> on top of this loaf of meat that you made. Very creative, very delicious. Anyways, Rick. Oh, hold on. Just... I was thinking, you got this 11 acres, Rick. What if we got a bunch of fat, old, naked people out here? Because that's the only kind of people that join a, a, a nudist colony. Expectation and reality are two very different things. It's like, have you ever seen pictures of a nudist beach? A real nudist beach, not like the National Lampoon's version of a nudist beach. Yeah. A real nudist beach is just 65-year-old hairy gray men with their old ball sacks out. It's like 85% men, 8% women, 7% animals, people walking their dogs. <laughs> and then actually just animal people. Yeah, it's true. I, from what I've seen. 
In hopes of getting some power and attention, so Roche, you know, now he's got his wife dressing scantily clad, and uh, he's talking about sex all the time. He's trying to get his in-laws to let him show his dick to the animals on their farm and all that stuff. In hopes of getting some power, he starts craving this power. He starts craving this attention. So in in an attempt to get some power, he joins a a citizens committee there in Thetford Mines, and he starts trying to get into politics. And I think this is very typical politician stuff, aside from the big dick. Um, It's somebody wanting power, wanting attention, wanting control. Politicians are fucking scumbags, no matter what color their their tie is. And uh, I think a lot of it stems from this, wanting to be a politician. Mm. Well, so local, local politician, he's going for. He started local, local, probably had dreams of going bigger, but we're, yeah, we're, that's, they all start local. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you you don't, you don't go from being a, 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 an asbestos miner to a state senator. Yeah. We're not all Barack Obama. No. (laughs) Zing. So, yeah, this is his first grab at power, his first grab at control. He he joins the Citizens Committee in hopes of getting into politics. He does begin carrying around there in Thetford Mines a copy of the Municipal Code that he had memorized, and he only carried it so that he could win arguments in his new community spot with other people. So, so he was one of those, actually, guys, whenever they would try to <laughs> debate him on it, if you look at 606.1.4. <laughs> it says that the grass has to be four inches from the sidewalk and that kind of thing. Now, Roche was very bad at politics. Very bad at politics. Horrible with finances. And he was always trying to put forth these like idiotic and ridiculous plans that would have bankrupted Thetford Mines in, in weeks. Like these grand grandiose Ideas that they could not afford that weren't financially sustainable. Uh, like, hear me out. You know, he's they're at a committee. He's like, hear, hear me out. Even though our town only has a population of 20,000 and absolutely no tourist attractions, I really feel we could benefit from a 12-story hotel in the shape of a maple tree. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Just absolutely absurd, out of his mind. Um, and on top of that, everybody's talking about how his wife is wearing... The denim has really lost a lot of its material. Looking like she belongs in a... What year is this? This is 70s. When was White Snake? Would have been the 80s. So, yeah, he, he's, he's got these plans that, that don't make any sense. And in 1976, not long after he joined, he stops going to the meetings. And the committee eventually votes him out. So he's out. In and out. Boom. There goes politics. Now, after getting kicked from the Citizens Committee, he still needs that power. He still needs that attention. Uh, he still needs to be in control of something, to, to have some feeling of control. So he joins a Catholic or- organization called the Aramis Club, and he does this despite his hatred of Catholicism. Hmm. But it's not about for him. It's not about the religion or any of that. It's they And, and the, Ar- the Aramis Club op is kind of like a Canadian Catholic version of Shriners. Okay, yeah. Um, they do benefits, they do functions, philanthropy, philanthropy type stuff, you know, helping kids in hospitals, um, that kind of thing. It's a very small bit of power, if you would call it that at all, but I, it was something. And it didn't take him long to become the leading man of the initiation ceremonies that brought in new members within the Aramis Club. Which is going to be just a... 
Anyone that gets initiated into that is going to see a big distraction in his pants because he's so excited about be having that power. Yeah, they actually had to get him two hats with the tassels <laughs> on it. He had his normal sized hat, you know, the big one on that he wore on his head. And then the other hat that he wore on his head, like the one that he wore on, on his head on his shoulders. Uh, so he gets put in charge of the initiation ceremonies in this Aramis club. And immediately, almost immediately, he begins trying to change the very old traditions, very old, hundreds of years old <laughs> traditions of the Aramis, Aramis club initiations to reflect his hatred of Catholicism. In a Catholic club. Oh, that's going to be hard to do, seems. Maybe not. That's like joining the SS and being like, hey, look, I want to be a part of you guys and everything, but I really love Jews. <laughs> I really like, they're my favorite people, I would think. So, like, I love everything y'all are doing aside from the Jew thing. <laughs> like the uniforms, they're snazzy, very squared away. They look good, form-fitting. Um, I like his mustache, but I do have an issue with the whole Jew thing. <laughs> he hates Catholicism and starts trying to change the initiations for the Aramis Club to reflect his hatred of Catholicism. He even shows up to one event wearing a cape with a large devil's face on it and tries to and, and tries to persuade the other members of the Aramis Club to get them one and wear it as well. <laughs> now, the other members of this Aramis Club are just a bunch of older, chill French-Canadian Catholic dudes that want to help cripple children and have fish fries. So they're like, no, nah, no, nah, I think I'm good on the devil's cloak. Um, and because of this, Rock is eventually kicked out of the Aramis Club Shocker. and stops taking his painkillers to, to, to keep his stomach pain in check. He replaces those painkillers with instead booze and then starts writing bad checks around town and bragging to everybody he can talk to about how much money he is he has. Uh, like a hip-hop artist. <laughs> like 50 Cent in 2015. I, I think he was bankrupt around that time, but still rapping about money. Probably. <laughs> in 1977, a young woman by the name of Giselle Tremblay, unfortunately for her, bumps into 30-year-old Rock while drinking with her sister at the bar. What do you think I'm going to say? Ibiza. Uh, at the bar of a Holiday Inn. Of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. In Thetford Mines. Yeah, that's where you drink. It's a bar slash hotel. Oh, uh, well. So, yeah, 77, Giselle bumps into Rock there. He was there selling his, his absorbent beer mugs. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately for Giselle Tremblay, she will become his first, quote, disciple. Wow. Um, he doesn't know it yet. But the groundwork for the cult has started here. Giselle Tremblay, uh, to, to, to kind of Tarantino this and go back in time, let's get into Giselle Tremblay she, because she does become an important figure in all this. Um, she had grown up in an abusive, chaotic home with a mean, abusive, um, overbearing, a violent mother and father. And a, she had grown up in a hor horrible environment um, her mother had pounded into her to be the typical, like, obedient housewife. Mm -hmm. If the man says something, it's might as well come from God himself. 
Um, you don't question anything the man says. You do as he says. Your job is to cook and clean and raise ch- and bear children. That kind of shit. I see. You know. Yeah. Um, and because of this upbringing, it had ended up ended like it so often does when women are raised in this kind of household in abusive relationships in her adult years. She ended up in a lot of those. And this is kind of if you look at it, if you look at the females that end up in the anthill kids, this is pretty common. Uh, they all come from uh, rocky upbringings where obediency is kind of pounded into their heads, which I think leads in low self-esteem and then also makes them impressionable. Mm. Yes. So Giselle is kind of like the stereotype of what will become a cult member, I believe. Um, Giselle's first relationship was with an alcoholic man by the name of Robert. And in one point in that relationship, Robert, like I said, he's an alcoholic. He had been, and she wanted to impress him. Uh, she wanted him to know that not only did she support his drinking, she can drink as well. So she tried to keep up with Robert during a day of drinking. So this six foot one, 240 pound man, a, a five foot seven, um, you know, 115 pound woman tries to keep up with him drink for drink. And Giselle ended up in a hospital with burned intestines oh. from drinking too much liquor. Whoops. It's the kind of woman this is, you know, um, very, I guess, what's the word without saying fucking idiot. What's the <laughs> word? Look, she's a victim. <laughs> uh, everybody that ends up in this cult, uh, with the exception of a few, there are a few ones. Um, they're victims. They're victims. They are. They yeah. are the victims in this. Um, they never hurt anybody outside of the cult. So the victims in this are the members themselves. Um, she was. I keep saying impressionable, but that's not the word I'm wanting. I'm looking subservient, for. maybe. Yes, wanting wants to be liked. Mm-hmm. Wants to feel cared for. Wants to feel needed. Wants to feel. Um, vulnerable like she fits in yeah in 1972 uh, Giselle and her then boyfriend Robert had moved to Montreal and uh, Robert gets into bank robbing and counterfeit currency there Um, she eventually leaves him and then not long after she leaves him Robert is killed in Montreal gunned down and that's when Giselle ends up getting an apartment with her sister um, she starts dating a man named Dave. They were even talking about getting married, but then 1977 comes along, and we are up to date with Giselle. Then 1977, on this night, she goes out drinking with her sister at the Holiday Inn at this bar, and it is there that she crosses paths, and these two paths cross, and she meets Rock Thero, not Rock Terrio, selling his shitty beer mugs. <laughs> now, uh, Roche, he does push his way into her life, um, despite the fact that he's still married, you need to keep in mind, Roche is still married. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So on the side, he, he, he's taking these, he's going on, he's going around selling these beer mugs. Um, I, I make it sound like this is his first affair, but the whole time he's selling these beer mugs while he's going around, he was having affairs with multiple women, sleeping with a bunch of different women, cheating on his wife. So yeah, he had been cheating on his wife, Francine for for probably years at the, at this point. Um, Giselle's the first one, though, that comes in that, that is impressionable and, and has low self-esteem enough to be what he wants her to be. So, to fi- so despite the fact that he's still married, he really, really moves in and goes past just a one-night fling or any of that. Starts writing her these cheesy, corny, cringy love letters. 
he constantly constantly tells her that because she's still with Dave, right? She's still got this boyfriend, Dave. Oh yeah. He starts whining to her in these letters about her about how her sleeping with another man hurts him deeply. Um, it's so cringy. The spot is huge cock. This is little dick energy. Yeah, it's yeah. He's very he's a narcissist. Is probably what I would say. One night, Giselle does let Roche stay over. Um, she asks him. She confronts him. She says, "Hey, are you married?" And he does confess at that time. But he says that his wife he lies to her, and the first of many lies, and says that his he is married. Yes, but that his wife is sleeping around town with other men. Which wasn't true, by the way. And she also, he also claims and tells her that he has cancer and he doesn't have long for this world, which is also a lie. Oh, he's trying to trying to pull one of those. So she'll pull one of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nothing gets pussy like a cancer patient with a cheating wife. Yep. Every time. She fell for it, though. How? I don't know. But when he tells her, yeah, I'm married, but she's cheating on me, and also I've got cancer, she's like, sign me up. Yes. I'm all in. You got two kids, too? Yes. You sell absorbent mugs? (laughs) Yes. I will have a part of all of that. So Giselle quits her job at a department store just so she can spend the entire summer with Roche going around selling his homemade beer mugs at local fairs. And they live off of her employment check. Wow. This is really love. This is beautiful Uh, love. She thinks he's got cancer. She knows he's got a wife and kids. And they're just selling mugs together, living off her her unemployment check. Tell his oldest time. Yep, it's true. Now, one night while they're out selling these beer mugs in their travels... Roche was uh, with they, now. Giselle wasn't with them on this night. Roche was just out with a couple of his friends. They're at a strip club there in a town in Quebec called Dobol Mistassini. Dobol Dobel Mistassini. Dobol You you yeah. try it. Double mastectomy. Double They're in a town called Double Mastectomy. Mm-hmm. And uh, in these travels, in these beer mug selling travels, Roche had discovered his comedic side. He was an oh, entertainer. I didn't. He was charismatic. Didn't know. In that. these beer mug selling travels, he had started doing little skits, little pranks, and whatnot for laughs. He was magnetic for people. They like being around this guy. Mm-hmm. And on this night in this strip club, Roche paid a stripper behind backstage to hang slices of strawberries off of her nipples. And then he went to the audience. He sat down in the audience with his friends. They're having drinks. They don't know what he's done. They don't know that he slipped a a fiver to this stripper to put these little strawberries off her nipples. And then uh, they don't know what's going on. But when she comes out on stage to dance, Rock jumps up on stage and begins nibbling the strawberries off her nipples. And, you know, his friends all think this is just Rock being crazy. Like, oh, God. But he had really set it up so that he wouldn't get tackled by security. And pummeled into a poutine. <laughs> the crowd went crazy, though. They loved it. This guy's crazy. He's a real silly backwoods Billy <laughs> with absorbent mugs. 
I keep saying that they're super absorbent. I would imagine he put some kind of resin or something on them to uh, to ruin, but I like to think he didn't. Or not. And he was just, he knew that he was going to be putting the first thing into every mug that he sold. So regardless of what they put in there after, he knew that he had already put something in there that they were never going to be able to get rid of in the absorbent layer of the mug. Or he just knew that all these mugs were going to have in them was maple syrup anyway, and it didn't matter. <laughs> that's true. Good points. Because I think that's what Canadian people drink. It's, it's just... Yep. That at the If you go into a bar in Canada, it's just maple syrup on tap, and they're like, you want another one, Frank? And they slide <laughs> another thick jar of maple syrup over, and he, he's thinking about his wife, and he's a cop trying to figure out a case, and he takes a drink of maple syrup. They're like... <laughs> He slams it down, he kills it, and he's got maple dripping off his mustache, and he's like, give me another one. And she's like, I think you've had enough. And he's like, I'll tell you when I've had enough, God damn it. Give me another maple syrup. <laughs> this time, let me chase it with a Mrs. Buttersworth. And she's like, the bartender's like, we don't carry that um, that that import shit. You got to go home, Frank. You got to sleep on it. He's like, I'm a, I'm a good cop. She's like, I know you're a good cop, Frank, but you've had enough maple. He's like, I've been off the tree for three years and I've relapsed tonight. <laughs> That's what they call it up there is being on the tree. On the tree or off the tree. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my cheeks hurt. So, on another occasion, so he does this little gig at the strip club. On another occasion, something kind of like this. And I don't even know why he did this. Because nobody else was there to watch it. He was by himself. But he paid a steakhouse manager. Try to wrap your mind around this. This is true. Okay. He paid a steakhouse manager to let him dress up as a homeless guy. And then for his own amusement, he stumbles in acting drunk in this dirty homeless costume. Grabs a steak off of a random patron's plate and then puts it in his pocket. This was a prank that he was just playing out in public. The customer fittingly absolutely lost his shit because he didn't get the joke. And the manager had to de-escalate the situation and explain to him what's going on. He's like, and I don't know how you make you do that and make yourself look good. Like, no, no, no. You don't understand. He's not actually a homeless guy. I accepted a bribe. To let him walk in and pay for that steak that you just gave $27 in maple syrup for. (laughs) To walk in and grab it off your plate and put it in his pocket. And it was supposed to be funny. And it's like, funny for who? I'm out with my... We're here because my mom died. (laughs) Gosh. From diabetes. Because she'd been on the tree for 38 years. So, um, yeah, little little bits like this where he, he plays practical jokes and, and does shit like that. It's kind of like the Tom Green show, who is another Canadian gym, Tom Green. 30 years before Tom Green started doing pranks, there's also no cameras, so what's the point? But, yeah, it's the Tom Green show before Tom Green existed. Um, a lot of good comedians come out of Canada. Yeah. So many good. Tom Green, um, I believe Nathan Fielder is Canadian. Yeah. I might be wrong. 
Uh, uh, Justin Ron- Trudeau. <clears throat> I said comedians, not clowns. <laughs> um, there's a difference. Uh, Ron Reynolds, I want to say, is Canadian. Yes, he is Canadian, yes. Uh, so many funny people come out of Canada. Um, there's somebody else that is slipping my mind. You know right. what's weird, too, and this is kind of sad, but in order for those funny people to be recognized as funny, they have to come out of Canada. Yeah. Yeah, it is sad. <laughs> it's a bummer, because there are some funny people that have never stepped outside of Canada entertainment-wise, like the guys, all the people from Corner Gas, but nobody knows what Corner Gas is, because it's a Canadian show. Corner Gas? Kids in the Hall? is Canadian? Kids in the Hall, Yeah. Um, it was Trailer Park Boys. Trailer Park Boys is Canadian. Yeah. Uh, Letter Kenny, Canadian. Yeah. Red uh, Green Show. So much great stuff in Canada, enter- entertainment wise, and so many talented people come out of Canada. Danger Bay is <clears throat> from Canada. Man, there's so many, but there are like, it's going to bother me now. So here's like, I just typed it in. Like, <laughs> I mean, this is imp- like, l- listen to the Canadian comedians. This is who Canada gave us. This is why we should be forever grateful to them. Phil Hartman, Martin Short, Dan Aykroyd, Mike Myers, Leslie Nielsen, John Candy, Tom Green, Dave Foley, Eugene Levy, Norm MacDonald was Canadian, who is one of my favorite people ever. Jim Carrey, Canadian. Catherine O'Hara, Canadian. Harlan Williams, Will Sasso, uh, Caroline Ray, Nathan Fielder, like I said, Jay Baruch, Ryan Reynolds. It's like everybody that, almost everybody that is somebody that is funny is Canadian. and But then they do all that, and I feel like all of it was for nothing, because then guess who else came out of Canada and ruined all of that? Seth Rogen. Oh, dang it. Yeah, And ruined all the progress that all those wonderful men and women had worked so hard Seth Rogen had to come right behind him and destroy all of it by existing. Yep. Oh, it's tragic. Yeah, it he is. cancels them all out. Yeah. There's not enough greatness to cancel out how unfunny and annoying Seth Rogen is. It's true. And that's, that is sad. You know, he, he's going around. He's doing practical jokes. He's doing comedy skits. Uh, he's with Giselle. They're living off her, her uh, unemployment checks. Giselle in this time is fully one million percent devoted to Roche, and eventually uh, Roche's lack of real employment catches up with him. Because keep in mind, he's still married mm-hmm. to Francine. Uh, he they do lose the house that hit that her and their kids that she is raising by herself they had bought, and uh, they get behind on their mortgage. They have to file bankruptcy. They lose their house, and it's this. At, it's at this point. Francine is suspecting that Roche is having an affair anyway, and also they're now homeless. She does leave him. Shocker. She does leave him. Now, while they had been traveling around, uh, Giselle and Roche traveling, so he's single now. His wife, and his wife they, she took the kids, they bounced. Um, Roche is with Giselle. While they had been uh, going around selling these mugs, Roche had a, a camper on the back of his truck, and he just had a mattress in the back of it which lo- ladies love that it's very romantic it's very sweet it's a uh, they call it minimalist living now mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. now you just try to put a little bitty nook in there for your laptop and hang live laugh love 
on it and you call it minimalist living. Um, it's a fancy word for almost homeless. <laughs> and, uh, but when Roche's wife leaves him, he files for bankruptcy and loses his house. He does move in with jail at her Giselle at her tiny little apartment there in Thetford Mines. So he fully moves in. She, his wife is gone. Not, doesn't have to hide anything anymore. Fully moves in. She's got a little apartment there in Thetford Mines. She also, keep in mind, still thinks that he has cancer. Oh, yeah. He hasn't given up on that lie yet. What? I mean, it just had to be the dick. Right? Well, What house... else is this guy bringing? Yeah. He's unemployed. He looks homeless, if you've ever seen pictures of him. He had this giant bushy. He started balding at like nine years old. Looks like Santa in his 20s. Men are pretty uh, simple creatures. If you think about it, like if if you've got an avid hunter, likely you walk into an avid hunter's house, there's going to be one or two or 30 mounts on the walls. You know, if if he's really into cars or automotive, it's going to be apparent before you even walk through the door. So this guy presents what matters to him in that it's nothing worth of a house or anything, but there's a mattress yeah. So she lets him move into her little apartment there in Thetford Mines. Sure oh, does. This this smelly hippie that's mm. selling beer mugs and is Weird. disabled because of how large his penis is. That, <laughs> it just had to be the dick. It had that, to be. I mean, they, they do say he was charismatic and charming and funny, mm-hmm. but who cares about that? <laughs> now. Things living there with with Giselle at her little apartment. Things were all right at first. Things went well, but it doesn't take long for Roche to soon become obsessed, just like his father, with religion and the Bible. But still, the difference in his father, he hates the Catholic Church. So he starts obsessing over this. Hmm. And one night while living there with Giselle in that little apartment, Roche announces to her that he had discovered a new source of spirituality, and he had found that in the Old Testament. And ironically enough, because Roche is such a misogynist, what he had honed in, what he had focused on, the part in the Bible in the Old Testament, was the role of women and how they should always be submissive and obedient to men. I was going to say, this has to be a control move, right? That's exactly what it is. That is exactly what this is. This is where it all really starts. He would constantly, reading the Bible all the time, only focused on the Old Testament. That's what Roche was interested in, because that's where he gets his, that's where he hears what he wants to hear. Yeah. Right. Right. He would constantly point out scripture that supported how he felt women should behave in the Old Testament to Giselle. And uh, all that scripture, uh, ironically, talked about how women are supposed to cater and listen to men and wait on them hand and foot. Hmm. This goes on until January 1977. And on that day in January of 1977 up, a man shows up there in Quebec in Thetford Mines by the name of George Hermans. And this man, George Hermans, had showed up to do a bit of the Lord's work because he was on missionary work for for the uh, Church of the Seventh-day Adventist. He was a recruiter Hmm. for the Seventh-day Adventists. Okay. Now... Immediately, George Herman sees value in Rock Terrio as a potential member. He's charismatic. He's, uh, he's arrogant. Um, and he's interested. And Rock Terrio loves the idea 
of an upcoming Judgment Day, which is something that the uh, Seventh Day Adventists really hone in on. They really, but they really focus on Judgment Day. They like really, it really gets them excited. And we're not talking about their belief that Judgment Day might be in this lifetime. Seventh Day Adventists believe uh, Judgment Day is maybe tomorrow. It's within the next fifteen minutes. It's like right around the corner, and always has been for the last hundred years. It's a bit, a bit of sense of urgency there. Urgency, yes. Mm-hmm. Rock loves this idea of a, of a soon judgment day, and he loves the idea uh, that another thing the Seventh Day Adventists believe this division of two groups on the judgment day that there's this group that's going to go straight to heaven, and then there's this group that's just completely fucked. Mm. He likes that he feels superior to half the population, more so than half, because not everybody is a Seventh Day Adventist. Uh, such a small population of of the of the people here in Thetford Mines, most of them are Catholic. Uh, such a small part of them are Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah, what's interesting about that, too, is that, like, it's funny because there's, like, two separate motivations in there. There are people that, uh, like like him, you know, that maybe there's a feeling, a sense of superiority, which I think you get in a lot of Christian religions. And then the other the other side of it is half the people are like, we got to tell everybody about this. We got to get the word out, you know, so that— Half the people are 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 frantic, uh, or or actively trying to spread the word, and the other half are like, "Ha ha ha! ha I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I'm good." <laughs> it's creepy. Now, Roche also loves this the Seventh Day Adventist mindset because he gets a lot of joy in the fact that his father would be in that group of people that were fucked. Oh, yeah, he likes that. Um, he also liked that the Seventh-day Adventists were incredibly different from Catholicism that had been hammered into him by his father. Mm. So this is basically a, a, a middle, almost middle. I mean, Rock is in, um, this is 77. So he's he's almost, he's in his, I guess, uh, this is 77. He was born in 47. So he's 30 years old. But what this is, is a uh, 30-year-old man still, <laughs> like, Pathetically bucking against his father. He's right. got daddy. Most issues. of us get that out of our system in our teenage years. Yeah. He still can't shake it. Now, things here, Op, and you might be able to clear this up. Things here uh, with seven day Adventists and Catholicism and Christianity and all of that, they very quickly uh, get super convoluted and confusing. I just don't want to get into it. It's complex. It's boring, and honestly, in the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't matter. It yeah. really doesn't matter. Just know that the Seventh-day Adventists are the aspect of Christianity. They're very old-school aspect, very, very, very conservative, very fire and brimstone, very strict. They're, they're very controlling about what is eaten, very strict about alcohol, very strict about tobacco, um, no disgusting, what they consider disgusting meats like like pork. Um, very strict. Uh, he loved all of that. This everything about the Seventh Day Adventist rock, rock, Roche loved it. In contrast to what everything he hated about the Catholic Church. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, do you have you ever had dealings with Seventh Day Adventists? I haven't. I don't, I don't think that I've ever. I mean, I'm sure I've known one. I just, but I didn't know it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have. When I was, we kind of you tended to run into other a lot of other religions when you're a missionary. And uh, sometimes it was positive and, you know, and enlightening and encouraging, you know, just to see other people of other faiths. And sometimes it was a, you were 
uh, what's the best word? Jumped. <laughs> Maybe. You know. Where so. were you doing missionary work? Detroit? Well, no, but see, as a missionary, if if you're recognizable as, I mean, even the people that knock on your door, whether regardless of religion or whatever, there's some people that are are eager to let you in, but then it's not friendly. It's uh, they want to just argue and fight with you and stuff, make yeah. you feel wrong. And so, you know, there was always kind of a balance between that. I mean, there were community events and stuff where, you know, maybe... You know, it was non-denominational, a bunch of people get together and it was just cool to see, you know, people doing good. And then there were times where it was like, oh, you wanted us to bring a Bible to you because you want to beat us over the head with it. So, you know, I had No that. way in hell am I going to let somebody abuse me with my own Bible. Exactly. Especially one that I got for free. Yeah. That's what I say. Ugh. The one I have is a miniature. So it doesn't even hurt. Is it one of those ones that you pocket? Have, they give it to you when you're on uh, in the military. Yeah, it's a little pocket King James version. Those are fun. Yeah, hard to read. You got to like really get close. Also, I'm not it. even quite sure all of this. All of the stuff is in there. Yeah, I think they took out the boring parts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's missing whole the the little tiny ones. You imagine if it were that small. It'd be like a foot thick if it had all the actual stuff in it. I think they're... Yeah, they took out the not important stuff. It's just got Genesis and Revelations. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then a word from, from like a a thought from the author on the sleeve. <laughs> a thought from the author. <laughs> There's a picture of Jesus and he's like got that... He's got his hand chin, under his, his chin, chin on his sitting on his... Yeah. <laughs> An Olin Mills photo. And they just used a picture of Jared Leto from 30 Seconds to Mars. <laughs> Lazy. Uh, zing. So after George Hermans, he visits Stetford Mines here. Start, he's spreading the word of the Seventh-day Adventists. Now, it's important to know that George Hermans had been sitting, sent by the Seventh-day Adventist church. Um, they were scouting. Mm-hmm. And they were scouting? Oh, like. They were scouting. They were they were looking. They were seeing if there was enough interest to to build a church there oh, okay. in Thetford Mines. All and right. after George uh, returns back and he's like, "Hey, there is interest." The Seventh Day Adventist Church sends a French West Indian pastor by the name of Pierre Zeta uh, to hopefully work towards start building that establishment, start start building that church there in Thetford Mines. And that's franchising, baby. They were working on. They were doing that Ray Kroc McDonald's business model. Mm-hmm. You know, like, hey, yeah. people want burgers here? Ah, it looks like we got an interest in burgers. That's what they're doing, but with churches, Seventh-day yeah. Adventist churches. Right. I remember in Alabama, um, you know, you drive down the road and you'd see those, like, construction or, like, uh, you know, land for sale signs, and it'd be, like, four, four acres zoned for commercial or, you know, whatever. Um. I kid you not. There, there's, there's signs that I saw down in like uh, Starkville, Mississippi, in Birmingham, Alabama, where it, they just said, "Build your own church," and it, you know, more power to you if if you. But that's that's how some people look at it. They look at it like, is there enough of a market maybe for another church right here? You know, 
Because you think about it. I mean, the people that do do churches, there's somebody inside of it that gets paid. So, Well, here's what's interesting, though, on that is they're in Thetford Mines. Whenever they decided there is enough interest, there is enough market here for a, a Seventh-day Adventist church, they only had six people interested. And oh. that was including Roche. And so, they, like, what is the low number? What is the, like, <laughs> there's yeah. not enough people here? None? Go, is that no how many it takes? <laughs> Six people was the threshold. Okay, weird. Mm. Holy crap, we're going to do gangbusters here. I would have probably chosen a higher number. And, you know, Rock Therio, six people, Rock Terio was two of them. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> Zing. Um, the first Seventh-day Adventist church uh, services performed here in Thetford Mines were performed in cheap motel rooms. That's how many people there were. I mean, they could fit all of them there in a motel room. And this is, you know, this is the, this is the 70s. So, the, you know, those motel rooms, they had wood-paneled walls, mm. giant 800-pound televisions. Beds with quarter quarter slots on them. So that they'd vibrate. Mm-hmm. What purpose was that supposed to serve? I think it was to help uh, secure a baby, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> Is that really? Was that really the purpose? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like it would have been the worst massage you ever got. So I can't imagine that's what it was. Now, uh, Roche, he, he moved up pretty quickly in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Not long after joining, he became Brother Terrio. Um, he quit drinking and smoking. He became a vegetarian. Um, so, yeah, within five minutes of being in this, he quits drinking. He quits smoking. He becomes Brother Terrio. He becomes a vegetarian. He basically goes through the same thing that millions of college students that go through Portland <laughs> go through. <laughs> Pastor Pierre Zeta, who the church had sent, eventually found uh, Roche's charisma and his uh, personable nature to be perfect for recruiting. So they send Roke out uh, uh, as a recruiter for a little bit. They give him more of a leadership role in the church. And in May of 1977, so just a few months after joining, he was given the job selling Seventh-day Adventist propaganda and whatnot, and within two weeks was the top salesman in the Quebec province. Wow. Two weeks. That's how long it took him to go to the top. And there's more than six people in Quebec. Yeah. Pretty impressive, honestly. I hate this fucking dude with a burning passion, but that is impressive. <laughs> now, not long after his promotion to salesman in the Seventh-day Adventist church, another thing, how do you... So they, they're selling this propaganda. You, as a, as a Mormon uh, who, who did missions, you had trouble giving it away, right? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. how do you go about selling something that people don't want at all? That's in, that's impressive in itself. It really is. I mean, something. Yeah, cult leaders have something. I just don't know what it is. I, if you could bottle that up and put it into something for good, then, you know. Uh, I've never been, a, I've never seen a cult that's like healthy. <laughs> right. That's not a trademark of cults. It's not a trademark of cults. It's not like, hey, we're all going to get together. Um, you're, you can still be with your husband, but you're not allowed to have sex with him. Only I can have sex with you all. 
all <laughs> all the boys here need to be um, they need to have their nuts cut off because boys are supposed to not have sex except for me because I'm selected by God. Um, but another another like very what's very important in this cult is health and being full of nutrition yes. and having healthy bodies. That's never one of the tenets and of healthy being in relationships a cult. and healthy respect for each other and never a th- no never a thing. I think. I would argue that if that was a tenant, mental and physical health in cults, they would be half the problem that they are. I'd agree. I'd agree with this. So not long after Roche's promotion to salesman, he convinces his girlfriend, Giselle Tremblay, uh, to also join the Seventh-day Adventist church, and she gets baptized in. And then they started going out as a team together, just like in their mug-selling days, spreading the word of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Hmm. Now, Pastor Zeta, he's watching all this happen, right? And he sees Roke's, Ro- Roche's success on the road. He sees Roche's success with people. And uh, he also puts him in charge of one of the church's local therapeutic programs that guaranteed you to quit smoking in five days. Um. So they offered these programs, hey, quit smoking, hey, quit sex, hey. Another thing that Seventh-day Adventists absolutely despise is masturbation. They, like, really hate it. Mm. I don't know why that's, that's like, the hill you die on. What somebody does with their own body behind closed doors, I think, is none of your business. Even God, I don't think it's any of his business. (laughs) Like, you gave me this thing that is attached to me, and I'm not allowed to do what I want with it. Yeah. Hmm. But they, one of the programs that the Seventh-day Adventist Church was a program, it was a course that, was, that lasted five days and was supposed to help you uh, quit smoking. And uh, how do you think they went about What do you think this program consisted of? Well, if you're going to quit smoking in five days, I'd have to think that you've got to replace that smoking urge with something stronger. So maybe it was meth. Something just as good as cigarettes, something yeah. just as good as nicotine. Either. Yeah, it was maple syrup. <laughs> Yeah. No, it was a broth binge. What? It was a vegetable broth binge. Gross. <laughs> Just so much broth. Ew. And because broth can't give you all the nutrients and supplements that you need, they would make up for that with injections of uh, certain vitamins, certain supplements. So, yeah, that was the key to quit smoking is just being really hungry and hangry for five days. Oh, and that broth, that has to just, like, that much broth, that it just kind of come through your skin at Run. some point. This is a man, and the man that's running this already has diarrhea. Yeah, Because <laughs> he's got dumping syndrome. Uh, Imagine a person with dumping syndrome on a broth binge. <laughs> what is something more wet than water? What? I don't know. I'm asking you. What can oh. you shit? What is a step further than li- and liquidy than water? That's what that's what Rockterio was shitting. That's what... <laughs> something that we haven't even discovered yet. It's not even in our galaxy. That's what he was shitting. Um, <laughs> but he was in charge of this course, this stop smoking course for the Seventh Day Adventist Church. And uh, and seeing that the church was growing and it was growing there in Thetford Mines, the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Pastor Zeta then spread out in surrounding communities and started recruiting to bring people in. And that's when Pastor Zeta 
ended up in North Plessyville, not far from, uh, just north of Thetford Mines. And he ended up converting four young people there in Plessyville that were all in their late teens and early 20s. There were three men and one woman. Or, I'm sorry, there were three women and one man. And they are important because these four young people up that Pastor Zeta has just recruited in North Plessyville will eventually become the first members of what will be the Anhill Kids in Roche Terrio's cult. And these four young people, their names were Francis Laflame, uh, um, a young lady, another young lady, 20-year-old Solange Ballard, 19-year-old Chantel Lebray, and uh, a young man by the name of Jacques Fassette. So these are the four uh, first cult members in, in Roche's church, or in Roche's cult. I even um, forgot we were talking about the Ant Hill kids until now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, there's a lot of footwork. There's a lot of, of foundation to yeah, be laid. There's a to, lot. I mean, a lot happens to get to the point that this story goes to. That's true. It's true. I mean, you just, it doesn't, it, there's not just a, an accountant one day <laughs> that's like, I, don't, I just really hate numbers. I think I'll go start a cult. That doesn't happen. There's a lot that happens to get to the point that this story is going to get to, and this story is going to get fucking dark. <laughs> I mean, mm, not. <laughs> uh. Now, 20-year-old Solange Bullard, many years, you heard me say these four names, you know, mm-hmm. one of them was 20-year-old Solange Bullard. Many years down the road, she will, many years down the road, and we'll cover her in episode two and episode three of this series. She will become one of Roche's most devoted followers. She will also be one of his most brutally murdered victims. Oh. little foreshadowing. I don't think that's foreshadowing when you just say what happened to them. Nope. No, it's giving it away. <laughs> but Solange uh, very, it has a very sad ending, but this is where we're introduced to her. Many years later, This all, her, her life comes to an end, and she's got one of the saddest stories out of all of them. Now, these four new young converts into the Seventh-day Adventist church were almost immediately drawn to Roche Terrio there at the church. They hung on every single word he said. He taught them how to eat right. He taught them how to live right. He taught them how to get closer to God. They pretty much from the get-go really looked up to him. He also planted the seed in their young, stupid brains that they should drop out of mainstream society, so they do so. And because Rock now had four young people hanging on every single word that he said, it pumped his ego up. He loved it. And within weeks, he convinced these four kids that had just now converted to Seventh-day Adventism to move in with him and his girlfriend Giselle at the Thetford Mines apartment. Huh. That's, uh, that's how a cult starts. Yeah. You see what's happening now. This is, this is the seed. Yeah. This is where it starts. Uh, not long after that first four moved in, they lured in another young woman who was a high school dropout and had showed up at the Stop Smoking course. Her name was Nico Ruel. She moved in with Rock, his girlfriend, and the other four recruits within days of meeting Roke. Mm. So now it's five recruits, Roke, Roche, and his girlfriend Giselle. So there's seven people living in this little-ass apartment. Not long after Nico Ruel moved in, Another high school dropout named Claude Oulet bumped into one of the OG four converts, Francine, Francine Laflamme, 
while they were at a disco club. And Francine, while there, went on and on and on to Claude Ulay about Rock Terriote and how awesome and life-changing Seventh-day Adventism is. Claude wanted to meet Roche, so she introduced them to them, introduced him to him, and within days, Claude Ulay is living with them too. So there are now eight. There are now eight people living in this tiny-ass apartment. You see what's happening, right? Snowballing. For for Rock Terrio, I think at this point, it's no longer even about Seventh-day Adventism. No, yeah. Well, and the interesting thing about that is if he's following a, a, a protocol, you know, of, of, of how to build this, every person he adds creates a multiplier on how many more people will join. Because now he's got, what, eight people to go out and recruit for him? Yeah, uh, well— Eight, including himself. Okay, seven other yeah. people. So yeah, yeah. Before you know it, he's going to stop recruiting altogether, and they'll just be the boots on the ground. That's exactly what happens. And it turns out Francine Laflamme, who had just recruited Claude Ulay, also ended up. She ended up being very valuable to the cult because she also ended up fucking over her two best friends from high school and recruited them into the developing cult. Oh, dang it. Those two women's names, young ladies' names, were Maurice Lombrer and and Josie Pellier. A lot of French names. A lot of French yes. names. So they now had a follow Roche now had a following of six women, not including his girlfriend, and two men. And most of all most of these people are all living in his apartment with his girlfriend Giselle. Now it's important to point out Roche's girlfriend Giselle, not stoked about all this. And super not stoked. You need to remember Roche is obsessed with the Old Testament and women being submissive. So he had told Giselle from an early on from early on in this that her responsibilities in this living arrangement were housework, cooking, and cleaning. And that his job in all this was making sure that the new people in their home uh continued on a on a path of spiritual growth, and he was also responsible for group massages. Yeah. Yeah, he was. <laughs> to keep him loose. Right. You got to be loose if you're going to take on the Lord. <laughs> you got to let him penetrate your body. In order to do that, you can't be tense. You got to loosen up. You're not kidding, though, with that guy, especially. It's like, can you imagine the amount of preparation you'd have to do to probably have relations with him? Oh, you're talking about his cock, ah. Roche's cock. Yeah, they definitely had to stretch. Oof. Yeah, it was like before you ran like a, they had to do <laughs> butterflies and that thing where you put your feet together. You sit on the floor Indian style. You put your put the soles of your feet together and then you lean forward and touch your nose to your to your ankles. Yeah, if I did that, my my hips would blow out the side of my body. <laughs> Another exercise to sleep with Roche Terrio that women had to do is they had to hang from a rafter and spread their legs and then let a professional boxer speed bag their cunt. They do the one hand thing. Switch it up. They had to do that to sleep with him before. They had to prepare. Now, anytime that Giselle came forward and complained about all of the cooking that she was having to do now, all of the cleaning she was having to do now, because now between seven and eight people are living in this very tiny apartment. That's a lot of mess. Um, they're using one bathroom. 
and Giselle alone is responsible for all for t- looking after all of them. Anytime that she came forward with a complaint about the half dozen homeless people living with them in their tiny apartment in this asbestos town, Roche told her that if, Roche told her that if she really loved God, she would open up her home to these people, or he would punish her. Ah, that was an See, acceptable answer. I'm gonna just I, I'm gonna just establish one thing that I deeply believe right here, and that is that. I think the true, I think if there's, if there's a good and true way to live life, whether you believe in a God or anything, it is that you've established a set of beliefs that then compel you to act and that, and not act out of fear and not act out of fear of somebody else's beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's where. And and what's crazy is that religions get split down the middle with that. Half the people are do it out of fear of the leader of the religion or whoever, you know, or the protocol says X, Y, or Z. And the other half are like, no, you're missing the whole point. <laughs> you do it because it, your, your, your due north, your moral compass compels you to do good. You do it for love. Yes. Ah, I think love should be the basis of any religion. Love and non-discrimination and acceptance, I think, should be the three foundations of any religion. We're really simple animals when you think about it, how, how all these people are missing something from their past and that a human can be kind of led around by the nose by somebody filling something so critical avoid usually mommy or daddy issues yeah yeah and that's not me being in it that's true no, i mean it's true. it's true it usually comes from uh some some missing thing from their childhood abuse that yeah. led with like i said low self-esteem Ugh. and just wanting to belong somewhere yeah and that's a natural drive that we all have so when somebody fills it it, it can be very powerful in your life well, we're now in June of 1977, Op, and it's uh, uh, this 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 month that a 27-year-old Seventh-day Adventist woman named Gabrielle Lavallee was the next to be recruited into the newly... And Roche doesn't know he's making a cult yet. He knows he's not in this anymore for religion, I think. But he doesn't know... I don't think in his head he's thinking, I'm going to make a cult. Right? Yeah, I, I don't... It doesn't seem like he's going to become full, like his wings have completely unfurled. Like, I have all this power over these people. It, it's like he's starting to get it, but he doesn't maybe realize to what extent Right, yet. right. It's, he knows this is going somewhere, but I don't think he knows where yet. Yeah. He just knows that he likes being in control. He likes these people looking up to him and worshiping him. And he knows he wants something more from this than just being part of a Seventh-day Adventism church. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as uh, Gabrielle Lavallee here, years earlier, little on her, years earlier, long before she ran into Roche Thoreau, Terrio, uh, she had been a nurse and she had been fired after accidentally killing a patient with the wrong medicine. Purely Oops. an accident, but that had sent her down a long path for many years of alcoholism and drug abuse. She even became a stripper and uh, a few years into that lifestyle. So killing that patient really fucked her up. Like mentally, 
Mm. And uh, after a few years of that lifestyle, she did find the Seventh-day Adventism Church and join the church. And she had been with the church several years by the time that she bumped into Roche Terrio. And uh, she eventually ended up running to him at a stop-smoking retreat in uh, Lake Rousseau there in Quebec. Um, she, She trusted Roche immediately. She loved him immediately and agreed to return to that little bitty ass Thetford Mines apartment with him at the end of that retreat. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if Roche was at a stop smoking retreat, he probably wasn't trying to stop smoking. He was trying. He was to running see- these retreats. I was going to say, yeah, he's it's it's like kindergarten for a cult leader. Yes, exactly. Huh. Now, like we just talked about, Roche, meanwhile, loving the attention. Loving these people, leaning on every word he had to say. He didn't want it to end. In fact, he wanted more of it. He was like a hungry, hungry hippo. Hmm. And uh, the young people here that are living with Roche and Giselle begin calling Rock, Pappy, and Giselle Mammy. So we're getting closer to being a cult. We're getting, yeah. we're like right over, like right there at the at the lip before things start. You know that part of a roller coaster? Click, 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 click. <laughs> right click. there. Right now we're at click. It's about click. to get crazy. Yeah. So they start calling Roche, Pappy, Giselle, uh, Mammy, and in September of 1977, the parents of teenager Chantelle LeBray, so she was one of the original four. Um, she was 19 years old. They begin concerned. They begin to get concerned because Chantel failed to enroll in college after moving into the Terrio household there with his girlfriend, and because mm-hmm. she's now living with a bunch of smelly hippies and she's just turned weird, they insist that she undergoes a psychological test. And uh, unfortunately, the psychologist reported that she was in good mental health. But Rock, seeing that these parents are now trying to step in, they're trying to. Um, get in on his people. They're trying to take his people, his followers from him. He starts panicking a little bit. And this is when he starts to get the idea up. He starts getting the fear that he's going to lose one of these people. He needs them. to. He feeds off them. He needs them. He realizes he needs to isolate them. He needs to get them away from everybody of sane, rational thinking so that they can't influence what he has put in their brains. Mm-hmm. He needs to get them away from everybody else. This is cult 101. Yeah. This is the first steps. And with that up, uh, the the seed has been planted. We got to get out of we got to get out of Thetford Mines. We got to isolate. And uh he's going to start building his cult and that will be the end of part 1 and we'll pick back up on that in part 2. Woof. And it's getting ready to get bad. Okay. Well, I'm excited and I probably shouldn't be. Well, a lot of f fucking <laughs> to come. About to, a lot of fucking and and limbs being removed and amateur surgeries and wow. and uh, and a lot of murder and a lot of nuts being cut off and a lot of fucked up stuff. Okay, is getting ready to happen because things go downhill very quickly once they get isolated. I'm, uh, I was excited. Now, come for the maple syrup, stay for the castrations. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like good marketing. All right. Well, 
I'll uh, I'll call you tomorrow for part two. Yeah, don't. I'll call you. I love you. What? Huh?